0: What a great focus for us to move on in our service to reflect on that amazing grace, that unfailing love. So as we continue, before we get into our study, I'd like us to pause and have a moment of prayer uh, together. Father, we thank you truly, truly for that amazing grace. I pray that you would never let us lose the wonder. And if we have, may you restore it to us. And if we've never experienced, may you... Lead us into it. Help us to know what that unfailing love is, that you will never let us down. You have broken the power of darkness. You bring our chaos back into order. You rule the nations with truth and justice. You truly are the King of glory and worthy of our fullest allegiance and worship. And Father, before we get into our teaching this morning, I also want to pray uh, for Will and Sarah Turner and their family. They are in the midst of chaos and transition. Uh, They have a house that needs to sell in uh, West Philadelphia or South Philadelphia. They'd like to purchase a house here. And so we pray that you would go before them, that you would help us to be praying for them, to remember them as they go forward. This is a time of transition where normal patterns, normal routines have been and will be disrupted. A new order needs to be. Established, and we thank you that you are the God who brings our chaos back into order. We pray that you would guide them to the right house at the right time, that you would provide for them the right buyer with the right price at the right time for their house. We thank you that the powers of darkness are defeated, that you have been victorious over them and we thank you that you rule the nations with truth and justice if you rule the nations how much more the sale of a house and so I pray father that you would provide for them and we their desire is to have a house close enough to this building so it it is not a burden for them to get here and so we pray that you would provide for that as well Uh, you know the timing you know what and where and when and we just pray that you would uh, provide for them And enable them to trust you in new ways through this process. And help us as a church to trust you and seek you through this as well. And now as we turn to your word, may your spirit use that word. To use your word to change your people into your likeness. In the name of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week we looked at how Peter focused on God's use of suffering for good in our lives. And we reviewed that God uses suffering to melt us down as gold is melted down to purify. As suffering comes into our lives, God uses that to expose the sinful, selfish feelings and motives of our hearts so that we can confess them and turn from them with God's help so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for God, for the one who died for us. We also talked about suffering is anything that is difficult for you at any intensity, from mild to intolerable. We often think that if we're not, if our lives are not being threatened or we're not being fired or we all have a serious health issue that we must not be suffering… That's not necessarily true. Suffering can be anything at any intensity from mild to intolerable. And we need to have, as I'd like to say as a reminder, we need to have a solid theology of suffering so as not to be shaken from our faith in God when those inevitable sufferings and troubles come into our lives. So we're going to continue on today in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. Before we do that... Uh, I want to remind us or point out to us that this study focuses on what we are to do when we are unfairly treated, when we are mistreated. Peter's words today talk about what we are to do, how we are to respond when we are mistreated, when we are unfairly treated by others. Over my 45-plus years of walking with Jesus, I can think of times uh, pretty easily that I have been treated unfairly. Uh, unfortunately, many of those times at the hands of fellow believers. What I'd like you to do, grab a pencil and your bulletin or your personal electronic device and write down a time that you were unfairly mistreated by somebody. Think of a time and write down a time when you were unfairly mistreated by someone. Okay, so hold on to that as we go through this study. I'm going to be reading 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 19. I invite you to turn there and follow along. Uh, You need to be checking on me to make sure I'm not trying to slip something by you and make sure I'm being honest to the Scriptures. And as I said, Peter is talking about how we are to respond when we are mistreated uh, as followers of Jesus Christ. So 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 19. Beloved... The first part of this passage, in verses 12 to 16, Peter is writing to the beloved. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to those who are Christ's ones, who are followers of Christ. They were suffering because of being Christians. They weren't suffering because of things that they were doing wrong. They were suffering because they were Christians. Peter's already given us examples in his letter Uh, of this mistreatment. He talks about in chapter 2 about uh, unbelievers, about mistreatment by government, about mistreatment on the job. And then in chapter 3, struggles and trials in marriages and by fellow believers within the church. There are times that we as believers are called evildoers. He says there were times you were slandered, you were reviled. In chapter 4, that you were maligned. And here in our passage, that you're insulted, for the name of Christ. And Peter starts out this section in verse 12. He says, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised when you, are, when you suffer for the name of Christ, when people make fun of you, when people revile you. He said you should not be surprised as if this is something strange. We live in a world where people live for themselves in opposition to God. For their own passions, not for the will of God, as we saw last week. We were once there ourselves, but this world is filled with people who live for themselves in opposition to God, for their own desires and not for the will of God. Jesus himself, Peter points out to us, Jesus himself was reviled. He was falsely accused. He was mistreated. He was beaten. He was killed. And unlike us, He had no sin in his life that people could look at and say, well, that's why he was suffering like that. So don't be surprised, Peter says, when you suffer the same way Jesus suffered. Peter says that when that happens, when you suffer the same way Jesus suffered, you are sharing in Jesus' suffering. You are sharing in that. And then he says, well, if that's true, then what should be our response In addition to not being surprised, he says in verse 13, you should rejoice. You should rejoice. You should be happy. He also uses the word you should be glad. It should be something that should give you a sense of satisfaction and joy and happiness. You should count yourself blessed. You should count yourself fortunate and well off. You should not be ashamed because of that, and you should glorify God. The fact that you are suffering for the name of Christ proves that you are so connected to Jesus that you are being treated the same way he was and is. The fact that you are suffering because you are a Christian means that you are so connected to Jesus that you are being treated the same way he was and is. And I say and is because people do not treat him well even to this day when you hear how people talk about him and use his name. It is an honor and a privilege to be so connected with Jesus that they treat us the same way they treated him. That's what Peter is saying. Instead of being depressed or sad or feeling that we're cursed, instead of being embarrassed, instead of blaming God for this, we should rejoice, be glad, count ourselves blessed, don't be ashamed, and glorify God. This is a very hard thing to do when you're mistreated, unfairly, to respond in this way. In fact, I would say it's impossible, and we'll mention that a little bit later. And then he goes on, and in verse 13, he says something that went by quickly. I almost missed it when I went through this passage and I was preparing, and I almost missed it in its significance. In verse 13, he says but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That last part, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. What Peter is saying is that to the degree that we share in Christ's suffering, we will share in his victory. We will share in his joy when he comes back. We are so connected with him that when he returns, we will be united with him forever. We will no longer have to suffer with him because that suffering will be over, but we will rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Jesus said in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, in the world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. He points us forward that one day we will share that victory with him forever. And then Peter moves on to verse 15 just to remind us that he's not talking about suffering because of our own sin. In verse 15, he says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. That word meddler means busybody. It's interesting that murderer and thief and evildoer... Put in the same list as a busybody, somebody who gets involved in somebody else's business. But sin is sin. And Peter is saying that he's not talking about suffering because of our own sin. That's another discussion. But it's important, I think, that we comment on this briefly. There is no rejoicing when we suffer because of our sin. There's, there's nothing to, to rejoice about. There's nothing to feel blessed about. There, there is indeed shame in that. But what we need to remember is that there is forgiveness. The shame is removed, the sorrow is removed because of Jesus' death for us. God is still for us. He is still there for us, even when we sin, even when we suffer because of our own sin. But that is not Peter's main point in this section. His main point here is what happens when we suffer unjustly and unfairly as Christians, as those those who belong to him. So he says, do not suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer uh, or as a meddler. And then we get to a, one of the few complicated passages to understand in, in 1 Peter. We're going to spend a little time with this. It's a little confusing at first, so we're going to spend that time. He says in verse 17, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And then he goes down in verse 18, and the right, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? So what is he talking about that, that uh, the righteous are scarcely saved? That, that has sort of an ominous ring to it. What does it mean that judgment is beginning with the household of God? If we misinterpret this or misunderstand this, this could be very unnerving. Uh, It could be a little guilt-producing, perhaps, and could create quite some uncertainty in our lives. So I think we need to spend some time with this. The key understanding that we need to grab a hold of is that we are all sinners. All of us stand before God as sinners. We have fallen short of his righteous standards for us. We have fallen short of who he created us to be. We have fallen short of All that he wants us to be, created us to be, called us to be, and has provided for us. We fall short of all of that. That's what it means to be a sinner. Every person who's ever lived, including all of us in this room. The bottom line that Peter is dealing with is, what do we do with that sin? What do we do to deal with that sin? So we'll start with the unbelievers first. He starts with the believers, but I think it's helpful for us to understand. I'll start with the unbelievers first. He says, what will become of those who do not obey the gospel? What will become of those who do not obey the gospel? The the testimony of Scripture is that one day, those who have refused the gospel of Jesus Christ will one day stand before God's throne of judgment And will be found guilty of sin against God and will be sentenced as worthy of eternal death. They will stand before God's throne of judgment and be found guilty of sin against God and will be sentenced as worthy of eternal death. And because they refuse to accept the gospel of God, as Peter words it here, that is Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, they have no remedy for their sin. There is no remedy for their sin. They are on their own. They will be judged accordingly. It is like a person representing himself in court, a dangerous thing to do, especially when you are guilty. They will be representing themselves before the court of God. They are on their own, and they will be judged accordingly. And therefore, the Scripture says, they will suffer eternal separation from God as the full payment for their sin. They will suffer eternal separation from God as the full payment for their sin. That is the judgment that awaits those who are unbelievers, those who have refused to accept, who do not obey the gospel of God, as Peter says. So Peter's questions about them, he says, what will be the outcome in verse 17? What will be the outcome for those who do not obey? What will become of the ungodly and sinner in verse 18? Those are rhetorical questions because the answer is they cannot be saved. They will be eternally separated from God. Well, what about believers? Now that we know that that is the judgment that awaits unbelievers, he says judgment has already begun for us as the household of God. Well, what does that mean? Well, it has begun in two ways. The first is that we, too, have been found guilty of sin against God and worthy of death. We're no different than anybody else. We, too, have been found guilty of sin against God and worthy of death. But the gospel... The good news of God is that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins so we do not have to. He paid the penalty. He took the judgment upon himself so that we do not have to. So a believer is one who has obeyed the gospel of God, that is, believes that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of his or her sins. Our legal standing before God is now as innocent. Jesus took our judgment. On himself, And we do not stand before God on our own. We stand before God with an advocate, with an attorney, with Jesus Christ, who himself took upon himself the judgment that was due us. And so now our legal standing before God is innocent. We are not guilty. We are not worthy of death, not because we are any better than anybody else, but because Jesus is better than anybody else. He paid the price for our sin, and gave us his righteousness. The second way that judgment has begun for the household of God is this. We still struggle with inward sinful passions, even though we are children of God, even though we are members of the family of God, that we have been related to him now through Jesus Christ. We still struggle with inward sinful passions. And as Peter has pointed out to us through his letter, God uses our suffering to purify us. So that we can actually learn to sin less. That's what he says earlier in chapter 4. He says, Whoever has suffered in the flesh, in verse 1, has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. God uses our suffering, whatever form it is, to purify us, so that we can actually learn to live for Him and not for ourselves. And then Peter says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, if you read that, you say, my goodness, what is that talking about? That sounds a little scary. Does that mean we're barely making it by the skin of our teeth? We're going to just sort of scrape by and claw by? No. What that's referring to, and some translations say it this way, the righteous is saved with difficulty. Saved with difficulty. What he is saying is that the Christian life is not an easy one. The Christian life is not an easy one. It is filled with various sufferings, various difficulties, various trials. We, as the children of God, are saved with difficulty. We are saved through the tribulations and trials and sufferings of this world. And we have hope because Jesus Christ died for us, rose for us. His Spirit is within us to change us and mold us. And it is a difficult journey Unbelievers have no hope. That's why he says, if the righteous is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? They are lost, separated from God, because they do not have the forgiveness of God. They do not have the grace of God. They do not have the presence of God in their lives. I came across this phrase years ago that is an attempt to summarize this difference between believers and unbelievers This life is the only hell that believers will ever face. And this life is the only heaven that unbelievers will ever face. I think there's some truth to that. This life is difficult. This life is challenging. But as far as the suffering, as it fits into eternity, this life is the only hell that we as believers will ever face. However, as beautiful as this world is and as Well as it is when things are working correctly, this life is the only heaven that unbelievers will ever face because they will be separated from God for eternity. So Peter's first point here is that we suffer with Christ. We suffer with Christ as those who are his followers, and that is a privilege. We should not be surprised as this is a strange thing because we are so united with Christ that we share his sufferings. But that doesn't tell us what to do with it, necessarily. And that's what he goes to in verse 19. He tells us what it is that we are to do with this. And this is the punchline, I believe, of Peter's message here. Before we go into that, I'd like you to think back now to what you wrote before about how you were mistreated. Think back to that incident, or perhaps there was more than one incident, how you were treated unfairly. You were mistreated by someone. Now think about how you responded to that. Think how you responded to that. Verse 19 gives us the guidelines of how we are to respond. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I find this verse to be very profound. It captures the essence of Peter's entire message in this letter of how we are to respond when we, are, when we suffer unjustly. We are not to become fatalistic or act like a doormat. You know what it means to be fatalistic, somebody suffering? Well, it's just the way life is. It just happens. <laughs> As a matter of fact, this reminded me of my little granddaughter who uh, my uh, son and daughter-in-law were reading the story of Noah no, Jonah to her. And um, they got to the point, where, and guess what happened? Jonah was swallowed by the whale. She said, Oh, that happens sometimes. <laughs> no, no, that doesn't happen sometimes. That's sort of what it means to be fatalistic. That happens sometimes. That happens sometimes. No, God is talking about something very different. We are not to become fatalistic or act like a doormat, just say, okay, that's the way it is. That's, the lot, that's my lot in life, just to suffer, and I just have to put up with it. No, Peter says we are to actively engage with our suffering. We'll talk about that. We are to actively engage. So this verse is very profound in the sense that it captures the essence of Peter's entire message in this letter. It, that's prob- this is probably the summary verse of everything that he's talking about. But this verse is also very personal for me. As I said before, I can as I asked I asked myself the same question I asked you, and I had been mistreated many times over the course of my life. And as God has led me to know how to respond to those times, I have to say I've not always responded well. But increasingly He has brought me to understand how to respond better. This verse has become a refuge. It has become a lifeline. It has become a source of hope and perspective. Peter has already alluded to it over in chapter 2, verse 23, actually starting at 22, talking about Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, and here it comes, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus did not seek, even though he was sinless, he was the eternal God. He says at one point, I I could call down legions of angels to take care of this problem. He did not do that. He did not seek to defend or justify himself, but he trusted his father to make it all right. He trusted in God to to vindicate him, to justify him, to, to make it all right even though he had the right to be able to defend himself. And Peter says that we are to remember when we are in the midst of suffering, when we are mistreated, that we are to entrust ourselves. We are to entrust our souls to our creator. To, we have to remember that God is the creator. Genesis 1.1, the first verse of the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And as we read through that, we see that God created this entire universe that we see by speaking it into existence. He said, let there be, and there was. That is who we are related to, the creator, the one who spoke this entire universe into existence instantly. Then at the other end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, verse 1, It says he is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. He is going to create again because this present earth is corrupted. It is broken because of our sin. He is going to remake it. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. But not only that, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. When we come to Jesus Christ, when we put our faith in him, he has made us new and he continues to renew us day by day using our suffering as one of those tools that he renews us to make us like himself. God is the creator. He is is creative. He is varied. He, is, he never does the same thing twice in someone's life. He doesn't even do the same thing twice in a row in my life. He's always doing something different. He's very creative. He is the creator, and he is making us new. We are to, when we are suffering unjustly, we are to entrust our souls to that creator. But Peter says he's not only creator, he's the faithful creator, He's the faithful creator. He is reliable. He is dependable. He is trustworthy. The one who created the entire universe and is going to make a new heavens and a new earth has promised to take care of whatever wrong has been done to you. Think about that. The creator of the universe, the one who spoke this all into existence, the one who's going to make a new heavens and a new earth has promised to take care of whatever wrong has been done to you. He can be depended on to do right for you without fail. The creator of the universe is for you. He is for you if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. There is nothing that escapes his notice or his control. There is nothing beyond his ability to fix Peter says we are to entrust our soul to that faithful creator. But then he says that because he's the faithful creator and because he can be trusted to take care of us, we are now free to focus on doing good, on doing the right thing in the midst of whatever suffering we face. We can know that he will make everything come out perfectly fine in the end. It is not up to us to fix the mistreatment. It's not us up to us to fix the problem. He will take care of any judgments. He will take care of any records that need to be settled. He will take care of any deeds that need to be undone. We are free to focus on doing what is right. Not ignoring the suffering, not ignoring the mistreatment, but trusting ourselves to the only one who can really take care of it. Another way to look at this, is looking at this verse as what uh, uh, I I learned this from Dave Paulison, uh, who recently passed away, went went with the Lord. He says, sometimes it's helpful to look at a verse as an anti-verse, an anti-verse. So I'd like to read verse 19 as an anti-verse. You'll know what I mean as I get into it. Therefore, Let those who suffer unfairly in this world recognize that God cannot be trusted to provide relief. You must trust your abilities, your experience, your instincts to do whatever is necessary to clear your name and right the wrong. Right? That's the anti-verse of what Peter is saying. God cannot be trusted. You have to take care of it. You have to do whatever is necessary to clear your name and right the wrong. Here's just a partial list of how we sinfully respond to others when we are mistreated. This is the partial list of how we respond to others in a sinful way when we are mistreated. Anger, getting even, avoidance, harsh treatment or rudeness, gossip, slander, indifference, making light of it. When we are mistreated, our temptation is to respond sinfully to those things, but God calls us to a higher, better response. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We are to do good in the midst of suffering, instead of returning evil for evil, instead of responding sinfully, we are free to do good, not because we're ignoring the evil that has been done or the mistreatment that has come to us, but we're trusting somebody else to take care of it and that somebody else is the faithful creator who has promised to take care of it for us. And he can take care of it much better than we can. This can only happen as we draw near to him. I had said earlier, this, this kind of response to, the mid, to suffering is an impossible thing for us to do because our sinful desires well up within us for justification, for vindication, for being proved to be right, to, to not be unfairly treated. Uh, Paul Tripp calls it our inner lawyer. Our inner lawyer rises to our defense to help us to right the wrong ourselves. And Paul, or Peter here, is saying no. God calls you to a higher response that we are to entrust our souls to a faithful creator and learn to do what is right in the midst of that. So our sufferings in this life are God's invitation to us to a deeper relationship of trust. Your sufferings in this life are God's invitation to you to a deeper relationship of trust in him to be confident that he will be faithful to do for you whatever needs to be done. If you have been mistreated, you don't need to fix it. God will fix whatever needs to be fixed when it needs to be fixed. You can focus on learning what it is to do right and trusting your souls to a faithful creator. I'd like to conclude today in a little different way But I'd really like to have you spend time as you leave this place focusing on that verse 19 of what it means to entrust your soul to a faithful creator in doing good when life treats you very unfairly. But we're going to close a little differently today. The song that comes after this is a song called Blessings by Laura Storey. It is a great song that expresses much of what we have seen in 1 Peter, but this song came out of suffering. (coughs) Laura's husband was diagnosed with a brain tumor in 2006, and this song reflects the suffering in their lives that has followed. The song was released in 2011, so it reflects at least five years of that suffering and Laura said this, quote, "'What does it look like when I spend years praying for healing for my husband that never comes? I feel like we've gotten to a place of having to make a choice. Are we going to judge God based on our circumstances that we don't understand, or are we going to choose to judge our circumstances based on what we hold to be true of God?' That is a great question which faces all of us. And I'm going to read it again. What does it look like when I spend years praying for healing for my husband that never comes? I feel like we've gotten to a place of having to make a choice. Are we going to judge God based on our circumstances that we don't understand? Or are we going to choose to judge our circumstances based on what we hold to be true of God? The chorus of her song says, What if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? And what if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? So as this song is sung, I'd like you to follow and reflect on the words. Sing along if you can as a prayer to God, and allow the truth contained here to move you. God can be trusted in our trials. And then when that is done, I will come back and close our time in prayer.